You're listening to the Good Samaritan Anglican Church Podcast. The following sermon was recorded on June 3rd, 2018. A reading from the second letter to the Corinthians, the fourth chapter, beginning at the first verse. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So our Old Testament today was about Moses and the Ten Commandments. And I want you to just think about the life of Moses for a moment. The giving of the law on top of Mount Sinai must have been one of the highlights of his prophetic ministry. There was thunder, there was lightning, there was trembling, there was earthquake. And God says, you, Moses, you alone come up this mountain. You alone come and visit me in my presence. Make these two tablets of stone and I'm going to write my law with my own finger on those tablets. And so Moses was there when God wrote his law on the tablets of stone. Moses was there when he hid in the cleft of a rock and and God passed by him and he got to see uh, the, the backside of God. That must have been amazing. Just imagine that for a moment. Now last week we talked about Moses as well. But last week we talked about Moses and the story of the burning bush. And there we find Moses in a very different place in his life. Moses, as a baby, was supposed to die. He was supposed to be drowned in the river Nile. And he was saved because he found favor with Pharaoh's daughter. And so he was brought up in Pharaoh's household instead of dying as a baby. But when he got to be an adult, he was troubled by the way the Jewish people were treated. And he actually killed an Egyptian. He became a murderer. And he fled. He ran away in shame. 
He went to a far-off land. He took up uh, the occupation of a shepherd. Having left the glory of Pharaoh's household, he went out and he he had to, to herd sheep in the wilderness and to live among a people that were not his own people. And it's in that low place in his life that God speaks to him out of this burning bush. And God says that he has a special mission for Moses to complete. His job is to go back to Egypt and to go right back to Pharaoh and to tell Pharaoh to let God's people go. And so Moses starts asking some questions. What, what is this going to look like? How do you want me to accomplish this? And then finally, he starts making up excuses. Where'd my Bible go? He starts making up excuses. And in chapter 4, verse 10, it says, Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth, and I will teach you what you shall speak. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, please send someone else. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like Moses with something that God was calling to do which you felt totally inadequate, unqualified, and unskilled for? And yet God does that over and over and over in the scriptures. Noah builds this great ark and he saves all of the animals and he saves his household. But then we see Moses get drunk and lie in his tent naked. That's not really becoming of a a great man of the Lord. Or there's Abraham. Remember Abraham? The father of, of all of Israel. The great patriarch of all the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When he went to Egypt, he gave up his wife Sarah and told her to go live in Pharaoh's household and live as as one of Pharaoh's wives because he was scared for his life. That's not very noble, is it? And then there's Moses we just talked about. David was an adulterer. Peter denied the Lord. Over and over and over again in the scriptures, we see these people that God calls to an important purpose, and they aren't the, the smartest. They aren't the most important. They aren't the most beautiful. And God uses them despite their brokenness and despite their weakness. And it's actually a good thing, surprise, surprise, it's actually a good thing when you feel inadequate because it reminds you whose power it is that you need to rely on. It's the opposite of the way the world thinks, isn't it? In the world, we develop skills, we develop eloquence, we develop beauty, we develop power. We cultivate these things so that we can have an impact in the world. But in the Christian world, in God's world, in God's kingdom, it's just the opposite. Because God's power is sufficient. And so we read in 2 Corinthians today what St. Paul said. He said, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. In Paul's day, as in ours, clay pots were not 
expensive. They were the throwaway pots. They were kind of like the styrofoam plates of today. If you had a, a metal pot or even a glass pot, you could reuse it if it broke. A metal pot could be mended. A glass pot could be melted down and reformed into something new. But a clay pot, once it's broken, is broken. You can't do anything with it except throw it away. You can't melt it down. You can't revive it. It's good for nothing except to be thrown away. And so when Paul is comparing these clay pots to us, he's saying that we are not supposed to be the most impressive or the most eloquent or the most beautiful or the most powerful because God's power is the one that's sufficient. That clay pot I was showing to the kids, I bought it at Home Depot for $1.20. They have much fancier pots made of all kinds of things with beautiful glazes on them, and they cost a lot more money, but that pot was $1.20. And that's the kind of pot we're supposed to be. Because when we're that kind of pot, when we're a lowly pot, we display the glory of God. So we are these jars of clay. What's the treasure that Paul refers to? We can see it when we look a verse earlier in verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. It's the light of Jesus shining into the darkness of this world, casting away all darkness, casting away all shadows, and bringing about light. And we are jars of clay. We are containers to express and display the beauty of this gospel, the beauty of this treasure. What greater treasure is there than this gift of life that's offered to us through Jesus Christ? There's nothing worth more. Now, I want you to think about a wedding for a second. When you go to a wedding, one of the cardinal rules of etiquette is never upstage the bride, right? So if you go to a wedding and you wear the fanciest dress, don't do it. Or if you go to a wedding and you propose to your fiancé, don't do it. You're going to upstage the bride. You'll get in trouble. The bride will not be happy at you or happy with you because this is supposed to be a day that's about her and her husband and the love that they share together. You don't want to steal her thunder. Right? Never upstage the bride. Now, God is not worried about being upstaged by us. There's really no way you could upstage God. He's, you know, he's pretty powerful. Uh, But God is worried, God is concerned that his gospel be clearly presented to those who are perishing. And so you can share the gospel with someone in a way that's all about you and displays you. Or you can share the gospel in a way that puts God on display just like those two pots I was showing the children. You want to be the plain clay pot, the one that displays the glory of God most magnificently. The gospel isn't going to change one way or the other. It's going to be just as beautiful. 
But you don't want to get in the way of the beauty of that gospel, penetrating the hearts of those who need it. We never want to make the proclamation of the gospel about ourselves because we want to focus where the focus truly belongs, and that's on God. So we see Paul say just a little bit earlier in verse 5, we're going backwards today, verse 7, verse 6, verse 5. In verse 5 it says, For we proclaim what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. And we as servants. That's another lowly metaphor, isn't it? Clay pots, servants. We're supposed to be as the least. So that we can display Jesus Christ as Lord. Our lordship doesn't matter. Our, our lordship is actually non-existent. But God's lordship, now that's something. One of the main purposes of this second letter to the Corinthians was for Paul to answer some of the critics who had been discounting his ministry. So Paul had planted this church in Corinth. He had gone away from it, and other leaders rose up in his place. And they were doing some things that weren't quite right. And they were trying to discount the things that Paul had taught, the things that Paul had said. And so in this letter, Paul is addressing some of those criticisms of his own ministry. And he criticizes them back. So, for instance, in verse 217, going back uh, two chapters, he says this. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak Christ. We are not peddlers of God's word. That was one of his criticisms of the people who were criticizing him. What does it mean to be a peddler of God's word? Sometimes there's an urge to make the gospel flashy or relevant to gain followers. Sometimes people want to dress up the gospel to somehow make it more appealing to people. And selling the benefits of the gospel without counting the cost. We see this sometimes where people make a guarantee of health or wealth. You've probably seen television evangelists say, if you, if you do- donate $5 to my ministry, you'll have a Mercedes-Benz, you'll have a private jet, you'll have all the things that you could possibly want in this life, and you'll be perfectly healthy, and you'll live to your 1,000 years old. Is that going to happen? No, it's not going to happen. Because they're empty promises. It's dressing up the gospel with something that's not true to make it more appealing to people, to appeal to their greed, to appeal to uh, their sense of, of deep need in some cases. The gospel is beautiful in and of itself. We don't need to put extra promises on top of what God's given us. And those promises, as you just said, Joy, they wouldn't even be good promises to begin with. Our life would not be good if God gave us everything that we wanted. And so some people were being peddlers of God's word. They were dressing up the gospel. They were giving it extra promises in order to try and win followers. Paul says, I'm not going to have anything to do with that. 
playing on the same image in the passage we read today. Verse 2, Paul says, We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. That word tamper that he uses uh, is not found elsewhere in the New Testament, but when we look outside of the New Testament at other Greek literature, one way that it's commonly used is with wine merchants. And it was a, a common practice for wine merchants, dishonest wine merchants, to water down their wine and then sell it as, as full, full-strength wine. That's what it was to tamper with the wine. And Paul's saying, we're not going to do that with God's word. We're not going to do that with the gospel. We're not going to water it down. Some people were adding to the gospel. Other people were watering down the gospel. And we can see that in our day, too. We can see people watering down the gospel when we discount sin or when we gloss over the offense and the challenge of the gospel. And there is an offense to the gospel because to become a Christian... To receive God's forgiveness means you have to first recognize that you're a sinner. You have to first recognize that there's something wrong with your life. And so some people tamper with God's word by watering it down, by saying sin is not sin. God loves you anyway. Go ahead. Do what you want to do. It doesn't matter. But that's not the truth either. We aren't trying to close a sale by pushing people to make a decision about Jesus by quickly saying a sinner's prayer. Instead, we're patient, waiting for as long as it takes for them to be ready to accept Jesus into their hearts. I think this is one reason why people sometimes get scared of evangelism, because they they hear the word evangelist or evangelize, and what they think of is someone standing on a street corner handing out tracts, trying to pressure people into making a decision about Jesus right now. Or perhaps going and knocking on people's doors and doing the same thing. But that's not what Paul is talking about when he talks about evangelism, nor any of the other writers of the New Testament. To evangelize is to share God's love. And to share God's love, we have to first share our love. We have to love the people that God's put in our way. We have to pray for them. We have to ask God to change their hearts. And we never pressure them into a decision about Jesus. We'll talk about why in just a second. There may also have been a criticism that Paul couldn't be a true apostle because of all the suffering that he endured. And Paul endured a lot of suffering. Paul was shipwrecked. Paul was stoned. Paul was beaten. Paul was imprisoned. Does it sound like a a walk in the park to you? Not to me. Paul went through a lot. And so some of his critics were saying, well, Paul can't be an apostle because look at all the bad stuff that's happened to him. Remember, they were dressing up God's word. So if Paul was suffering for the gospel, he must be doing something wrong. Look at us. We're rich. We've got it all together. Things are going well for us. We're the true apostles. And Paul says, no. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. 
always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Paul says just the opposite. If you are preaching the gospel, you can expect perhaps bad things to happen. You can expect suffering. You can expect resistance. You can expect challenges. And those things don't make you any less a Christian. They don't make you any less a minister of God's word. In some cases, they're evidence that you're doing the right thing. Because sometimes the right way is the hard way. And so Paul addresses their criticism saying, we're struck down, but we're not destroyed. We're persecuted, but God never abandons us. God is always walking with us. God is always right there near to us. Through good times, through bad times. Through hard times, and through joyful times. Our job is not to preach ourselves or to make the word of God palatable. Our job is to proclaim the gospel by the open statement of the truth, which is what Paul says again in verse 2. By the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So we don't need to dress up the gospel. We don't need to take away the offense of the gospel. We just need to preach the gospel with the open statement of the truth. Because the world certainly doesn't need any more lies. What it needs is truth, which is the antidote to the lie. Paul says that some won't be able to see this truth of the gospel because it will be veiled to them. When we pick it up in verse 3, it says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ. Who is the God of this world? Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth, but the God of this world is Satan. Satan is the one who blinds people's eyes. We talked a couple weeks ago about the ruler of this world, which is also Satan. And for this time... For this season, for this age, Satan is having a field day. God is ultimately in control. God will ultimately win the day. God is the ruler of everything, of heaven and earth. But Satan is the ruler of this world and the God of this world. And here we say God not with a capital G, but with a lowercase g. As one of the pagan gods. Lesser than the one true God. Satan has blinded the eyes of this generation and every generation before and since Christ. Satan is the one who puts this veil over people's faces so they can't see clearly. This blinding is by Satan who is the father of lies. And when you lie to someone long enough and consistently enough, they begin to believe the lies and they get blinded to the truth. You can probably picture any number of people in your life who have a certain perception about themselves because of what kids on the playground said about them when they were younger or what their parents said about them when they were younger. And so they walk around believing these lies that have been told about them when it has no bearing on what the actual truth of their lives is. We see this also in cults. You've all heard about what goes on in cults. Cults like to isolate people who feel abandoned or weak or disenfranchised, and they pull these people off to the side 
and they isolate them, and then they start telling them lies over and over and over again until they start to believe those lies are the truth. And it takes a significant amount of counseling for someone coming out of a cult to recognize the truth after they've been fed those lies for so many years. Lies are dangerous. And this is what Satan does. Satan blinds us to the truth by speaking lies to us, by speaking lies to the world. And so there's plenty of people in the world who are blinded to the fact that there's sin in their lives, and that sin is actually sin, that it's bad. And if they believe that there's a God at all, they see him as a condemning God who couldn't possibly love them. But this is anything but the truth. It's so far away from the truth. Because God loves each and every one of you and each and every one of everybody in the world so much that he gave his son so that we could have life. God's love is infinite. God's love is abundant. God's love is poured out for each and every one of us. In the previous chapter, Paul speaks of this same veil and he says that it's only Christ who can take it away. Chapter 3, 14. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. This is why we don't want to approach evangelism with pressure. Because if you're pushing on someone and pressuring them to accept Jesus, they might not be ready for it. They might be blinded. And it's only Christ who can lift that veil. It's only Christ who can open their eyes to see the truth. And so if you're pushing on someone they're not ready to hear it, you might do more damage than you actually do good. Instead, we need to plant seeds of the gospel constantly. We need to develop relationships with people. We need to make sure that we love people in a way that they know that we love them, whether they choose Jesus or not, whether they choose holiness or not. We need to pour ourselves out for them. Because it's by that sacrificial, unconditional love that people will begin to see God's love. And by being that constant presence in their life, by constantly offering to talk about Jesus, not in a pushy way, but in a way that lets them know how much you love them and how much God loves them, eventually Christ will open their eyes. And sometimes that happens fast. Sometimes it does happen on a street corner or with a door knock. But much more often... It happens over years of relationship with someone. And here's the amazing thing. God delights to use us in this process. God delights to use us in this process. He gives us opportunities to share the hope that we have found in him and the truth of the scriptures. And as we share that hope and truth, God lifts the veil and he changes hearts. What does that mean? It means we get to be co-laborers with God. Isn't that amazing? I mean, what a privilege to be a co-laborer with God, to have a hand, a participation in what God is doing to change people's lives for good, for the rest of their lives and into eternity. God allows us to have that witness in their lives. God allows us to be his instruments to help change their hearts. It's God who lifts the veil, but we get to have a part in it. And that's amazing. 
It's amazing to see someone's life changed for eternity. So what does this mean for all of us? It means that we need to preach the truth accurately and boldly when we have the opportunity. And we need to pray for those opportunities. As I said before, evangelism, conversion, most often happens as the result of years of relationship with someone. Years of pouring into them. Years of letting them know how much you love them. And so when God has burdened your hearts for a particular person, that's a person you need to be praying for. Pray for them every day. Pray that God would lift the veil from their eyes. Pray that God would give you opportunities to have spiritual conversations with them so that you can share how much God has changed your own life. We all need to shift our thinking and embrace God's call to be missionaries and evangelists. Some people have a particular gift of evangelism. They just have spiritual conversations with people all the time. It seems like there are constantly people around them who are turning to Jesus because they have this gift. It's a spiritual gift. It's the Holy Spirit working through them. But all of us, whether we have that gift or not, are called to be touch points with God's love in people's lives. All of us are called to be missionaries. And that doesn't mean you have to go to Africa or Cuba or South America or anywhere else around the world because you can be a missionary right in your own community, right in your own family, right in your own neighborhood, right in your own place of work, right in your network of friends. You don't have to go anywhere to be a missionary. And God calls each one of us to be his witnesses right where we are, wherever that is whether Africa or Middleburg. This also means that we don't need to worry about our worthiness or our eloquence, and we certainly don't have to have it all together to be able to preach the gospel. And I think this is comforting, too. You don't have to spend years and years studying. You don't have to spend years and years honing your evangelistic technique. You don't have to practice for years and years how to draw little diagrams on napkins. All those things can help you, and I'm encouraging you to study for years and years, and I'm encouraging you to to practice sharing the faith. But from the moment you become a Christian, God can equip you to share what you have found with someone else. Because you are an expert. You are the greatest expert in the world in what God has done in your life. I can't share with anyone more powerfully about what God has done in your life than you can. Because you are the biggest, greatest expert in what God has done in your life. And that's all you have to do to share the gospel. You have to recognize what God has done in your life and share it with those who need to hear it. Why? Because we know that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. In Romans chapter 1, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is powerful. The gospel is truly a treasure. It's truly a gift. There's nothing better that you could offer someone than the gift of life that comes through Jesus Christ. And it's only Christ who can lift the veil and heal the spiritual blindness in people's eyes. And so we get to be jars of clay. 
We get to be these vessels that display the glory of God. And your brokenness is actually your asset in that. Because when someone sees a perfect image of a perfect person, they don't want to share their struggles with that person. My wife is smiling at me because this is my own weakness. I want to look like I have it all together. I think most of us probably do. But when we are broken vessels, when we share our struggles, when we let people know that we are sinners too, that we don't have it all together, that's powerful. Because it says, I have a brother. I have someone who understands me. I have someone who knows what I'm going through. And as some people sometimes say, sharing the gospel is like one beggar telling another beggar where they can find some bread. We're all sinners. We're all standing before God in the same position. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not that one is a sinner and the other isn't. It's that one's been saved and the other hasn't. And that salvation is still being offered to the one who hasn't accepted it yet. And they need that bread. They need that life. And you get to offer it to them. Not because of your beauty or your eloquence or your power or your perfection, but because of your brokenness. Because in using you, God can display his glory. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power is from God and not from us. I don't have the power, and you don't either, but we all know who does. And so this means that God can use even you, even me, even us, even this church to be a powerful witness to his gospel. And he loves to do so. Because when he does, he gets all of the glory. Because when he works through us, it's clear that the power comes from him and not from us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the treasure of your gospel. We thank you that you use us as your co-laborers in this world to share your truth with those who need to hear it. And so we pray that you would make us effective ministers of your gospel. We pray that even now you would show us the people that you have brought into our lives that you desire to reach out to through us. And we pray that you give us opportunities to share your love with them. Give us the words, Lord. Give us the power. Give us your Holy Spirit. And we pray, Lord, that you would lift the veil from their eyes and show them your glory. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This has been a production of Good Samaritan Anglican Church in Middleburg, Florida. For more sermons, sermon notes, and information about our congregation, please visit www.goodsamaritananglican.org slash sermons. If this podcast has been helpful to you, please subscribe and leave us a review with your favorite podcast player. Thank you for listening. God bless you.